0: our way through and we're starting chapter three this morning. As we look at this section of scripture, let's remember that Mark started off his his gospel saying that this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so what we find unfolding is simply the gospel. The gospel is the good news. That's what the word literally means. And it's no mistake that as Mark is unfolding, and by the way, many think that Peter actually gave Mark the information to write. Uh, I'm pretty sure that it was Peter that really wrote the book through Mark's hands. Ultimately, it was God who wrote the book. But as as we're diving into this, we're basically unfolding or unpacking this package called the gospel. And this is the most important message, the most important gift that mankind has ever received, and it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as this gospel of Jesus Christ is unfolding, we have to remember that the book of Matthew ended with the church having the commission to use the gospel and to take the gospel message into the whole world and make disciples. And really for any believer, that should be what our life's ambition and mission is, is that we would see our life in this world in such a way where we would see this great commission that you and I are actually here on the planet for this very Reason and is the reason reason of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and so often the church can easily sway away from that and lose the purpose and point of the existence of the church. And it is the Great Commission. So often the church gets into um, worldly works and misses the Great Commission. And the church becomes more like the world than it does like heaven. And when the church is more like the world than it is like heaven, the church is not powerful and effective and is completely useless really in this world. There's no need for it. And so as Mark is unfolding this gospel, I'm I'm reminded of what may be... I'm saying this kind of tongue-in-cheek, but maybe one of the most unfamiliar texts or scriptures in the Bible. Can anybody tell me what you think maybe the most familiar text or scripture in the Bible might be? Yeah, John 3.16. That's probably the most familiar section or, or text of the Bible scripture that people know. And what does that say? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. And so if you know that, you know the gospel pretty much. That's pretty much the gospel, but maybe the most unfamiliar Scripture of the Bible is what comes after that. Can anybody quote to me what comes after that <laughs> without looking? Yes, yes, yeah, so yes, okay, bread sandwich illustration. So as we look at the bread of life in the scripture, so here's here's what comes after this. And there's a reason I'm saying this, because this is to me, this is very representative of often how Christianity is viewed. So here's verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. The, the world might be saved. And as we understand this, we, we start to hear these words like that, that the world doesn't need to be spruced up and decorated. world needs to be saved. But then he says... He who believes in Him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already. So why do we need a Savior? Is because for those who don't believe, you are walking in condemnation. You are living your life in condemnation. You are under condemnation. That's why we need a Savior. That's a pretty big deal but you're already condemned. And then he says, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God, and this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil for everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. So what we find here is this good news that mark tells us in mark chapter one verse one this gospel this message it's that we are in a condition of condemnation we are living condemned in sin and that's why we need a savior and the savior came jesus christ and that's the good news that Jesus has come to save us. And that's why we can come and worship like we did just a few minutes ago out of the gratitude of our heart, fully free from that condemnation, fully alive to God. There's an energy there. There's a passion there. And so as, as Jesus came into the world to be our savior, we can't forget the other side of that is why we needed a Savior. And what a serious condition we are in without the Savior under condemnation. And so as as Jesus came into the world with this good news, we just saw in John, not everybody was into it. There were those who rejected it. And this is not good news. This is the dark side of the gospel. And this is why in our world, we see the church has always been attacked, the true church of God, because the world hates the gospel. Why does the world hate the gospel? We just read it. Because light has come into darkness. This light exposes deeds of darkness and the world doesn't like that. We are probably all at one time people who didn't like people who shared the gospel with us. We didn't want to hear about that. We wanted to avoid it. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 3 it says that the gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. Now, if that's not scary, I don't know what is. Our response to the saving work of Jesus Christ will reveal to us whether or not we are perishing. Because it is belief in Jesus Christ as we read in John chapter 3 verse 17 and on it is belief in him or rather faith in him trust in him that saves us from condemnation. So this morning we're going to continue through the book of Matthew but what we're going to look at is particular components of rejecting Jesus. Rejecting Jesus isn't always that straight out rejecting of Jesus. Sometimes it is. It's not always like that. There are different components of that. And so this morning, we're going to work our way through this section of Scripture. We're going to go through Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. So, will you read with me through that section? We're going to just expose ourselves to the section and then. We're going to dig in a little deeper. So if you have your Bibles, we're in Mark chapter 3, verse 1. It says, And he entered, Jesus, he entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a withered hand. And so they watched him closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, step forward. And then he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. And when he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. Just a mind-blowing account. As we look at this rejection of Jesus, and what we find is we're going to start off this first section. Is this component of re- re- rejecting Jesus? W- one of this these blinding components is a religious system fixation. It was those who were in—I w- I should say—entrenched in. A religious system that this section of scripture focuses on. As we start to dig in a little bit, we realize that the star of this story, and I'm not saying that in a positive way, but the highlight, the spotlight, is on the rejectors. And it's on how they saw things and and how they came to these conclusions and their responses, but what we have to first understand is they, they were heavily entrenched in this religious system. They're fixated on it. In fact there's a this deception of religious rejection. We can reject the gospel because of religion because of a system. So notice in verse one it says he entered The synagogue again. So what's going on? Jesus has been on the move. The book of Mark is a very fast-paced book. And we've seen Jesus. We just started chapter 3, and he's on the move. He's done so much already. And a lot of what he has done has met resistance and has met objections. But what has he done that would merit a uh, rejection or merit uh, an adverse response well he's in in chapter 1 verse 21 he is he cast out a demon uh, in chapter 1 verse 24 and on he heals peter's mother-in-law in chapter 1 verse 40 through 45 he cleanses a leper in mark 2 verse Seven, he heals a man that was paralyzed and couldn't walk. In Mark 2 verse 12, he eats with sinners. In Mark 2:18, he was questioned because his disciples didn't fast. And then in Mark 2:23, his disciples were picking grain on the Sabbath and eating it, and Jesus was questioned. About that so so all throughout this book, and really in, in Jesus' ministry, what we see is conflict and tension. and why is that? We just read it in John chapter three, in that one of the most unfamiliar passages, and it's not, I'm saying that tongue- in cheek, but it, it's because light has come into darkness. It's because people are under condemnation. but see, sometimes we have the idea that religious people in a religious system are not under condemnation because they're in a religious system, because they do religious things, because they belong to a religious organization, because they uphold religious ordinances and religious traditions. So we we have a mindset that people like that are holy and good and righteous, But when we think that, or when a person in that system thinks that, they actually become more blind to their own condition, as we're going to see. So as Jesus is moving and preaching and teaching, and he's doing his work now around the Sea of Galilee, where there are all these little villages, and he'd go into these villages, and the first thing that he would do is go into the synagogue, which was their little local place of worship. And here he is again. In in Luke's account of this same uh, uh, story, Jesus was in the synagogue teaching at this time. And as he's in the synagogue teaching, I can only imagine the people there just thinking, like, what's going to happen? Because stuff happens when Jesus was teaching that one time a demon, like, Manifests himself and Jesus casts out the demons so I'm sure people are waiting to see these services got a lot more exciting when Jesus came and and as Jesus is there teaching it says there's a man there who had a withered hand so first of all we don't know where this uh, synagogue was we know it was around the Sea of Galilee we don't know if it was at Capernaum which we've seen him do a lot of his work in the place that was his headquarters and where Peter lived and where Jesus probably stayed. But we don't know where this synagogue is. It was around the Sea of Galilee. And in this synagogue, there there was a withered hand man. And we don't know if this withered hand man was sort of put there by the Pharisees. And we find out later also the scribes were involved in this. Or he was just a man there in the synagogue normally. And mind you, at this point, Jesus had been healing a a lot of people, many people, thousands of people, all the different cities, all the people would come out and he would just be healing them. And so here in this scene, we have this withered hand man and, and that withered hand man, the way the Greek structure is on when it says withered Hand, it, it means that he had, it was in the present tense, which means that he had a past event with a continuous result, meaning he became paralyzed in his hand and that continues. He wasn't born that way, in other words. And so this man in an agricultural society would have a, a lot of devastating effects because. He would not be able to do many of the tasks that were necessary with his withered hand. And the book of Luke, which is interesting because Luke's a doctor, actually points out it was his right hand. So that that's a really good doctor stuff. You know, the, it was his right hand. He specifies that was the problem. So his right hand then most would probably be uh, even more devastating because generally. That would be your hand of strength and power. So this man was in, he was in a very bad state, in a very bad condition. But notice in verse two, there they are again. It says, so they, who are they? We find out later here, it's the Pharisees. And then we also find out in, I believe, Luke's version, that it's also described. So in, it, it, it's the people that were entrenched in a religious system. It was the people that worshipped this religious system, and because of their involvement in this religious system, it made them feel holy and righteous. And because of that, they felt like it was their responsibility to guard the tradition, to guard the religious system. And so you, you get this picture that they're always popping up where Jesus is. And when it says they watched him closely, that word means they're looking at him from the corner of their eye type of thing. Another way to look at that is they're spying on him. So as Jesus is, is working He's the Messiah, who is proving that he's the Messiah. Then you have an, another group that's watching and and sort of spying, and they, they, every little move that they that he made, they would inspect it. And notice what it says next. It's, this is very re- revealing. It says they watch him closely whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Now, does that strike you as odd at all? Like did the the fact that here's a guy that they knew could heal him. Did you get that? It didn't say they wondered if he could or not. They're wondering if he would. So just that, that in itself would make you at least have a more open idea or mind to maybe this is the Messiah. But instead, they were looking at him and, and they were thinking, if he heals this guy on the Sabbath, busted. Let's see if he does it. And I, they would sit in the front of the synagogue the Pharisees and the, the elders, they would sit there and there's the withered hand guy and there's Jesus. And their whole thought is not, he can heal somebody. That's amazing. That he, They weren't thinking that. They were thinking, he, we know he can heal, but is he going to do it on the Sabbath? And what they wanted to do was accuse him. That word accuse means to bring legal charges against him. Do we have enough? Can we nail them down? So, their religious system that they were, it blinded them to the reality of who was right in front of them. Their religious system made it impossible for them to see the Messiah in whom they know the scriptures talked about. And these were the people that knew the scriptures more than anybody. So we find that you can know about something, you can know about the scriptures, but it's also possible to know and that knowledge actually blind you from Jesus. And it's because if we don't have a heart that is surrendered to the Lord or we don't have a desire to want to know the Lord of the Scriptures, but instead are gaining information so that we become smarter or we can be, become more knowledgeable, then the Bible says that knowledge, that type of knowledge puffs up and God resists the proud, but what? Gives grace to the humble. So there we find something very important. That there's a humility as we come into the scriptures. And this is what people resist. People resist the necessity of humility as we come into the scriptures. So let me just say a little word about this thing called the Sabbath. Because this was the battleground. The Sabbath was the battleground. This was the place where Jesus kept challenging because this is the place where they held on so dearly. So the Sabbath to them exceeded what the word of God said about the Sabbath to the point where it became simply traditions that blossomed into unfathomable rules and restrictions. Let me explain. So we first get introduced to the Sabbath in Genesis chapter 2, where right after God made mankind in his image, then the next thing is that God had a day of rest. God stopped working. That's what Sabbath literally means, ceasing, desisting, or deceasing ceasing from work. Stop working. So God stopped working. Why? Because the original Sabbath in Genesis chapter 2 was about fellowship. It was about communion. God created man. Before that, he created the world and everything in it. And then he wanted to create man to have relationship with God, to have fellowship, intimacy with him. Fast forward about 2,500 years later in Exodus chapter 20 where the Ten Commandments were given. After the children of Israel came out of Egypt, God delivered them. God gave the Ten Commandments and one of those Ten Commandments was to keep a day of a Sabbath once a week. And that day was to be a holy day. And the whole point of that was God wanted to bless the people. He wanted to say, here's a day, don't work on that day. Here's a day to enjoy. Here's a day to focus on me, to commune with me. Here's a day off. But see, the the key to that don't work was then what's work? Don't work. Okay, don't work. So what happened is that the Jews, the first five books of the Bible, they call the Torah, and that was literally God's word given to Moses. But then the Jews, the Israelites, they developed more books, the Mishnah and the Midrash, which were oral interpretations of the Torah's meaning. You guys get that? So now they're developing books to help understand, well, what is work? How much work? How little? What's actually defined as work? So now they have their own book that they... Made or came up, their scholars, their religious people called the Mishnah and the Midrash, which were interpretations of the Torah. And then later, they came up with something called the Talmud, which was the interpretation of the Mishnah and the Midrash. So there were over 60 volumes of interpretations of the law. We pointed out last week that the Sabbath alone had 39 restrictions of things that constituted work, things that you could not do, 39 things you could not do. And there were 39 prohibitions for each one of those 39 restrictions, which came up to, I just did the math, 1,521 interpretations of what not to do on the Sabbath. So this created then a category of people, the Pharisees and the scribes, who then became experts in knowing what those traditions were. And everybody looked to them as holy and righteous because of their ability to keep those traditions. But many of the things they did were so people could see them. So they would fast, but they would make themselves look terrible. So everybody would say, ooh, look, they're fasting. Some of you might think I've been fasting, but I actually, I got ready this morning. This is how I look. This is the best of me. But they tried to look terrible. And they would do things so people would look at them and and glorify them and magnify them. Can you turn over to Mark chapter 7 for one moment, please? To give us a little better feel of this. Look at uh, Mark 7 verse 5. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to to the what? Tradition. See, this is not the Bible. This is not the Torah. This is their tradition. This is their tradition extraneous interpretations of the Torah, which are traditions. And why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but they eat bread with unwashed hands? So now it became uh, a focus on they didn't wash their hands correctly. They did wash their hands, but not correctly, not the way that was instituted by their law. So Jesus gives them Actual scripture. He says, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you, what? Hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. That's where, you see that? So they're teaching traditions and doctrines of men as actual God's word and it wasn't and then they were holding people to that standard that's what you call legalism so then in verse 8 he says for laying aside the commandment of God that's what you have to do to be a legalist to be a Pharisee to stick to a religious system is you have to actually set aside the commandments of God And now you're making up your own stuff or people are making up your own stuff and elevating that to the level of scripture. That's what's going on here. So in verse seven again, and in vain they worship me, teaching the doctrines, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men for laying aside the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. Turn back with me. So that's what the whole thing was, and that's why Jesus kept doing things on the Sabbath because he was graciously, but also forcefully exposing them to the reality of their own hearts. And so that leads us to what he says next in verse 3. So this religious fixation must come to a place where we surrender our religious fixation to a simple relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's what it all comes down to. Any religious system or tradition that adds works in or adds tradition in to the simplicity of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ must be done away with. Because what Jesus did when he died and rose again from the dead is he crushed the barrier that separated us from him relationally. So by him dying on the cross, making the way possible because he paid the price for our sins there, sins are what kept us from relationship. So when Jesus died, he brought the possibility for any, anybody who would believe not to be more religious, to, to, but to be in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And when you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, you don't want to add anything to that. You don't want anything but that. You just want Jesus. And any additive into that takes away from our relationship with Jesus. And that's why Jesus kept pressing the Sabbath. Because in order for these Pharisees to come to a place of being born again, of being saved they would have to let go of their religious system. It wouldn't coexist, as we are seeing. But see, what happens is, as we watch this unfold, we see this, what I, I'm calling truth-rejecting determination. This is what happens when our religion is our hill to die for, or when I say religion, I'm saying when our tradition is our hill to die on. We will be confronted with how that affects a personal relationship with God. And if we're not careful and we're holding on to something other than Christ and what he did and his finished work on the cross, then we fall into this category of truth-rejecting determination. We're going to be determined to keep embracing our religious traditions above the work of Christ. So look at verse 3. So Jesus said to the man who had the withered hand, he said, step forward. And I love that because this is like God's calling. God's calling all, all of us to step forward, especially we can see the man with the withered hand as sort of a, a type or a picture of someone who's never been born again, someone who's never came to faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus is calling all to come to him. Back to the most popular, famous verse known, for God so loved the world. So he, he doesn't wish that any will perish, but some do, and some will. Why? Because they'll reject this. Why? Because some would rather have their religious formula and system than they would Christ and Christ alone. And so Jesus now, he's presenting a case study here. Remember, he's in the synagogue. He had been teaching. This man with the withered hand is there, and the, the Pharisees, the religious people, are looking at Jesus, not so much, is he going to do a miracle? Is he going to help this man? But can we bust him? for doing something against a religious tradition so Jesus confronting religious tradition he says step forward and then he said to them to the Pharisees he asked them a question so you have the man with the withered hand standing there I I imagine he'd be pretty excited like okay let's get this going I'm ready to work But Jesus is saying, now, let me ask you something. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or evil? You know what he's doing? When he says, is it it lawful? He's bringing them back to scripture because he's going back to the law. Remember, we have gone past the law into traditions. Now he's bringing them back to scripture. And this is how it always works. We always have to go back to Scripture. We always have to go and see what the Scripture says and ask ourselves, am I adding things into this? Am I um, holding something to the same level as Scripture? So Jesus brings them back to the law. And he says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? So... As he asks this question, what's happening is he's exposing their true condition. This is what the Word of God does. The Word of God exposes our true condition. As you read through the Word of God, you find out, as we read in John chapter 3, verse 17 and on, you find out that we are under, under condemnation. You don't read through scriptures and say, I'm a pretty great guy. You won't read that. You'll read stuff like, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You'll read stuff like, the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things, who can know it? You're not going to read, you're a pretty great guy. You're going to read just the opposite. You're going to be exposed for the reality of your own condition. And hopefully, so you cry out to God and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Hopefully, you won't close it up and say, God doesn't know what he's talking about. I am a pretty good guy. My mom told me. (laughs) You won't read the Bible and find that. You'll read that you're not a pretty good guy. That you're in a fallen condition that you're under condemnation because of your sin that separates you from God. And then the question is, what is it in you that would reject Jesus offering his salvation to you? That reveals your true heart. If you would reject the offer of Jesus to forgive you of your sins, then that reveals that you are perishing and that you are blinded. Like in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, to those who are perishing... The gospel is veiled to them. So, this is what Jesus is doing. He's bringing them back to the word, he's exposing them to the truth. And as he's doing that, then he's saying, Now, here's the situation. Here's a guy with the withered hand. Now, what would be the best thing to do? Not help him because of your tradition? Not anything that's a law but of your tradition? Would it be better? Does your tradition actually implore you to not help somebody? And this is where one finds themselves when they're living in a reality that's not God's reality, when they're living their own truth that's not the truth, the absolute truth and the only truth of God. It reminds me of what the British early 20th century writer G.K. Chesterton, Chesterton wrote The first effect of not believing God is you lose your common sense because you've accepted a lie. Now, how hard and how deep and how determined will you be? To stand on that lie, even when the truth is exposed. So that's what Jesus is doing. And as he brings this truth to their plate, they have a decision to make. And he's bringing the obvious to them. And he's telling them, this man with the withered hand, do you not care about his condition? And remember, they knew Jesus could heal him, right? Do you care about his condition or not? Is your day more important than this person? Remember, Jesus summed up all the commandments in two things, love God and love people. So then he takes it a little further. Is it lawful on the Sabbath not only to do good or to do evil, but is it lawful to save a life or to kill? So now now it's really getting really serious now. He's bringing up the gravity of the belief system that they've developed and that they're holding on to. So now that this demonstration, this healing, this teaching, it all comes to a place now where it's right on their plate before them. Maybe like somebody listening today, maybe you're hearing these things For the first time, or maybe you're hearing for the tenth time, but you've kept pushing them away. But watch their reaction. But they kept silent. Why did they keep silent? Because they had nothing to say. Why did they keep silent? Because they know Jesus was right. They were backed into a corner. They knew they were wrong. But what do we do when we know we're wrong? Do we keep silent? Or do we confess that we're wrong and repent of our sin? That's really the issue here. See, the Pharisees are no different than anybody else at this point. It's just a matter of what we do at this point. That's what makes the difference. What we do at this point, do we repent of our sin? Do we repent of the fact that we're trusting in something other than Jesus Christ? Or do we just keep silent and move on? You know what happens when we become silent and move on? Not only are we rejecting Jesus, there's something that happens to our heart. That's what we see next. So look at verse 5. So now when Jesus had looked around at them, so imagine Jesus, now he's looking at them, he He's like giving eye con- contact with them. And he, he's, he's, he has a reaction. And Mark gives us the most information about the emotions of Jesus of any of the Gospels. And his first reaction was anger. Is anger a sin? No, it can be. But there's something called righteous anger. Jesus was angry at sin, it's okay to be angry at sin. There's things going on that I have seen in the world that I wish I can unsee. That makes me angry. There was a spa in Los Angeles where a transvestite man was walking around because he identified as a woman naked in front of young girls. That makes me mad. That makes me angry. And I think I'm okay being angry about that. I think there's a problem if you're not angry about that. There's even more of a problem if you celebrate that man's right to be naked in front of little girls over those little girls' rights. There's something twisted and sick and wrong with you. But there are some protesters in front of that place yesterday and they were attacked by antifa. And in my mind I'm just I just I just was thinking what I would like to do if I was there. it, it really made me I'm not trying to be like macho or tough it really made me angry. It made me glad for the open carry law that's going to come up in Texas <laughs> in September. Cuz that that's that makes me angry. That's not right. And if somebody's going to assault your family, if you're in downtown Dallas having a nice dinner and you have people come and assault your family, does that make you angry? So there's righteous anger. It's correct to be angry at the right things. There's something wrong if we're not angry at some of these things that are just so despicable and heinous. So Jesus looked around and he had that feeling, but also notice what he says next. He was grieved... By the hardness of their heart. So now he has compassion. So he has this mixture. Of, now he just, he felt so bad for their their condition. Why did he feel so bad? Because he knew what that meant. He was offering them forgiveness and they were rejecting that. And he knew what that meant. He knew the in, eternal comp, um, eternal components of that. He knew the internal eternal implications of that. And he is grieved by, notice what it says, the hardness of their heart. So that's the thing right there. That's what happens when we're exposed to the truth and we push it away because we're set in our own selfish, religious tradition, unwilling to bend or yield to the truth that we're exposed to. When we push it away, there's an effect on that. If someone hears the gospel and pushes it away, there's an effect on on them. What is that effect? A hardened heart. What does that mean? That means that we can become desensitized to the word of God. The more we push it away, there's a hardness of our heart. There's a callousness that happens. And that's why we need to be as a church praying for our friends and our loved ones and our families that are rejecting and resisting the gospel because we know there's a hardening effect of their heart, and we need to pray that their heart would stay tender and soft. And Jesus was grieved, and then he said to the man, the man's like, finally, back to me. Jesus said, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Notice that complete healing, instantaneous. None of this phony TV healer guy where there's these fake like, oh, I have a headache. Oh, he touched my head. I don't have a headache anymore. He, his hand was withered and then it was restored to normal. And he says, as whole as the other. And I think that's important just before we just finish this last little part Jesus is saying that to many of us today. There may be things in our life that Jesus wants to restore, but we're keeping it to ourselves. And we don't know the power of God in his restoration. And so we're going down all these avenues to try to fix things, make things better. And the answer is stretch out your hand to Jesus and just let him work. Let him restore. Let him restore your marriage. Let him restore your situation. Let him restore your relationships, your finances, whatever it is. Stretch it out to Jesus. And it says he made the other one as whole. But here's the final thing the final response of the Pharisees is mind blowing to me. It says they went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians, which were non religious people who were known for their allegiance to the Roman government. These are not normal friends. The Pharisees and Herodians hated each other, but they united in their hatred of Christ. And notice what they did. Now they're plotting to what? What does that say? To destroy him. He just healed a man's hand, and their response is, we need to destroy this man. So there are implications of rejecting Jesus. And we are going to take communion, but I just have to get this in. Because I think now as we go through this section of Scripture, as we've been going through Matthew, what's been heavy on my heart is that there's seems like in the church to me at least there's something that's been lost you know and what's lost is the why you know why would anybody do anything that might be dis- uh, or uncomfortable to them why would anybody do anything that might jeopardize them in any way in the, for the sake of Christ, why would why would anybody be a missionary? Why should we do? And what's being lost is is the significance of the why people do this. Why we have brothers and sisters in the world now being killed for their faith? Why would they do that? In America, it's made to seem like Christianity's just this fun little group you you join, and then you go get entertained on Sunday so you can go home and just. Have a jolly old time. But I want to read for you the why. And then we'll have communion. As I'm reading this, this is why you and I have to step up and truly live our faith out. Revelation 20.11 I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were open. And another book was opened, which is the book of... And the dead were judged according to their works by the things books and the sea gave up the dead who were in it and death and hades delivered up the them and they were judged each one according to his works then death and hades were cast into the lake of fire and this is the second death and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. That's why it's not okay to stay on the sidelines and never engage people in the culture with the gospel of Jesus Christ because that's real. Because 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 is real. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. This is a part I love. As such were some of you. That was us. That list is us. But you are washed. And you are sanctified. But you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. We cannot lose that. And we must be invigorated not to be comfortable, not to focus so much on our life and how's it going But man, people are actually going to stand before God and give account and be cast in the lake of fire forever. And God has given you and I the great commission. He says, now you go and make disciples and I'll be with you forever and ever. Amen. We must do this as a church. We must stop just pointing the finger and complaining. We must be about our father's business. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. And hang on, we're going to have communion. So, Father, we thank you for loving us. That while we were still sinners, you died for us. And Lord, I, I do feel a sense of urgency. And I do, it, it concerns me, Lord, after what we've gone through as a world in the last year and a half, to see some if not many, completely unmoved, completely unable to connect the dots about truly the condition of this world and truly the need for a Savior. And so, Lord, this this message, this gospel, we thank you for that. May this be our life's work, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, Lord, as we take communion today, I pray as we remember you that we would rededicate ourselves to you first and to your work the great commission may the gospel be always on our lips because you've left us here to be lights in this world not to be like this world so we're going to have the ushers come forward I just want to encourage you now and that we just have a few minutes left so take this time to to pray to God to be with God and rededicate yourself to him stretch out your withered hand let him restore you maybe you just got caught up in the things of the world the things of self and Today's a good reminder as we take communion. It's a good reminder to say, you know, today's a new day. Lord, be my first love again. Lord, I present myself to you today. So take some time in prayer. We're going to have the ushers come forward and they're going to pass out the communion. Hang on to it and then we'll take it all together. But just take this time to spend time with the Lord now. Try to save the cracking open till we do it all together. I know it's tempting. If anyone's open, there's up already, come up front. Natsuki. No, <laughs> As we finish up this morning, I hope that the love of Christ is so overwhelming you that you could not do anything but. Share the love of Christ with other people. And this morning as we take communion, this is a reminder. Jesus said to do this in remembrance of him. Let's remember him. Let's remember his salvation. Let's remember what he's done for us. Let's remember how good he is. Let's remember how ever-present He is. Let us remember He is the Restorer. He is the Healer. He is the Great I Am. Is Jesus enough for you? It's at the cross that we discover that He's enough, that He's all we need. And so we have these elements that remind us, and we need these reminders, because, man, we get so distracted and so caught up in the things of this world. And I love communion because it's just a reset and it reminds us of the greatness of God's love for us. As we hold these elements, let's go ahead and break them open now for those of you who actually waited. Just kidding. So we have these elements in this bread reminds us of the body of Jesus Christ. And there's so much to that. This morning, I was looking at my two-year-old son, and he was just sitting there on the floor. And I was just thinking, man, God the Father sent his precious son like that to die on our sins. and It really uh, reminded me of how much he loves us. This precious son, Jesus Christ. God the Father sent for us to be a sacrifice, to die this bloody, awful, torturous death. God the Father sent his son. He loves you. He proved his love for you. Remember that as we take communion this morning. Let's partake of the bread together. And it was this precious blood that was shed by which you and I stand before the father cleansed and washed nothing but the blood of Jesus. The man with the withered hand, he needed to be restored. He needed, he needed someone to touch him. He needed a miracle. He didn't need somebody to rub some lotion on it or put a banding on it. He needed a new hand. We need a new heart. And it's because of the blood of Jesus that you and I have a new heart. Let's partake of the cup together. Amen. Let's all stand. We're going to sing this one last song. And we're going to have Rob and Val up front for anybody who would like prayer about anything. As we sing this last song, just come up and pray. But pour out your hearts to the Lord. This is an opportunity to express our gratitude and our love for Christ. So pour out your heart to the Lord. God bless you. Happy Fourth. And most importantly, happy being free in Jesus' day. God bless you guys.